Welcome to this podcast on Zimbabwe by ICH, the Institute for Continuing History. The Institute is a professional research body that investigates acts of state-sponsored or communal violence, which continue to have a major impact on the lives of individuals and nations. This series, The Taste of Poison, Apartheid's Black Ops in Zimbabwe, examines the acts of espionage, assassination, sabotage and subversion conducted by South Africa within the borders of its newly independent northern neighbour during the 1980s. It also looks at the men who pulled the triggers and planted the bombs, as well as the impact of their actions in what was a turbulent and sometimes devastating period for Zimbabwe and the region. For those who are unfamiliar with the places, parties and politicians mentioned in this episode, please see the ICH website, continuinghistory.org, for a primer on 1980s Zimbabwe. In part one, we explored the ideas and historical context that underwrote apartheid South Africa's policy towards Zimbabwe in the 1980s. We also looked at some of the organisational structures that were established by the South African Defence Force to conduct cross-border operations, and we investigated the assassination of the ANC representative, Joe Garby, by members of Project Barnacle, a unit of the SADF's Special Forces. In this episode, we examine how Garby's killing marked an intensification of South African special operations in Zimbabwe, and at how, in parallel, there was an escalation of countermeasures by Mugabe's Central Intelligence Organisation. You are listening to a podcast from the Institute for Continuing History, written and presented by Dr. Stuart Doran. The website of the Institute for Continuing History is continuinghistory.org. The Zimbabwe government's initial investigations of Joe Garby's murder were inconclusive. South African intelligence noted that there were wild rumours circulating within ZANU-PF that Garby was killed by his own people. Quote, Gossip within the party indicates that Garby was knocked off by the ANC as a liability which could thus be turned into a propaganda asset. Unquote. But Mugabe and his ministers assumed correctly that this was a South African hit. Two weeks after the incident, a British diplomat reported that, quote, The Zimbabwean authorities still have no firm evidence as to the identity of the assassins, but there is a general disposition to blame the South Africans, unquote. Indeed, only two days after the killing, staff of South Africa's so-called trade mission, its unofficial embassy in Salisbury, were warned by a senior member of Mugabe's office, quote, that Mugabe and the government here hold South Africa responsible for the assassination, and that senior members of the trade mission, in particular, are now targets for possible ANC retribution. Unquote. 
The Zimbabweans were still sifting through the background to Garby's killing and had only just buried him when the South Africans struck again. On the night of the 16th of August 1981, an explosion occurred at the Central Ammunition Depot, 35 kilometres northwest of Salisbury, triggering a monumental series of detonations that eventually destroyed 70% of Zimbabwe's total ammunition stocks. The depot's holdings had recently been swollen by a disarmament exercise during which former guerrillas awaiting integration into the army had their weapons and ammunition removed from them. Rockets and other types of ordnance landed up to six kilometres away and a bunker containing 300 tonnes of Air Force bombs collapsed. The bunker was later destroyed in a controlled explosion that measured 0.3 kilotons in force and shook windows in the capital city. Remarkably, there were only three minor injuries when the depot went up in smoke, despite the fact that it was located alongside the army's Nkormo barracks, which housed the parachute regiment and other units. A board of inquiry was rapidly convened with the assistance of technical experts from the British and Yugoslav armies. The inquiry's report was not published and all copies were later said to have, quote, disappeared, unquote, but one member of the board confided privately on the final day of procedures that, quote, the inquiry is likely to find the cause of the explosions to be an accident caused by cigarette ends being thrown onto a tent containing a large quantity of gas containers, which ignited and began exploding, unquote. The containers landed on rockets, quote, whose motors ignited and flew in all directions, some striking ammunition bunkers, thus setting off a chain reaction, unquote. The inquiry's members thought, quote, that there was a remote possibility of sabotage, with theft being the motive, because some of the depot guards had been selling gas containers to the public, unquote. But they judged that there was, quote, no evidence of subversive sabotage at all, unquote. Despite the absence of hard evidence, Mugabe seems to have suspected the hand of South Africa, as with Garbi, and again, he was correct. The proof was to come to light in due course as the government reconfigured its counter-espionage response to the South African threat. The recalibrated Zimbabwean strategy was intended to strike a balance between unnecessary provocation of the South Africans and a desire to take more aggressive action against possible South African agents within the country's borders. In the first place, care was taken to ensure that the ANC continued to be unable to use Zimbabwe as a base for military action against South Africa. The South African Trade Mission reported intelligence during October that, quote, Minister of State Security Emerson Munangagwa has given instructions to the CIO and the security service within ZANU-PF to watch the activities of the ANC in Zimbabwe carefully. While persons are allowed to move through the country, it is an instruction that all possible measures must be taken to prevent them taking through weapons and ammunition to the Transvaal, unquote. 
intelligence received by the SADF's Chief of Staff Intelligence, or CSI, confirmed that the Zimbabweans were adhering to that policy. Meanwhile, Mugabe's security agencies upped the ante in pursuit of subversives. Using the significant latitude provided by state of emergency regulations, they cast their net further and wider than before. They became less concerned about collateral damage, more paranoid, and frequently targeted innocent citizens. Yet there was a kind of crude mathematics at play in their approach. In expanding their lists of suspects, the probability of catching enemy agents increased alongside the collateral damage, and there is little doubt that they began to exert greater pressure on genuine South African operatives. You are listening to a podcast from the Institute for Continuing History, written and presented by Dr. Stuart Durham. The Institute's core work is cutting-edge original research on some of the world's best-concealed acts of mass violence. And we also track recent scholarship and debate on major episodes of violence that aren't covered by our own research programs. High-quality educational outputs and groundbreaking investigations take time and require significant expertise and resources. So if you'd like to make a donation to our work, please visit continuinghistory.org. Shortly after Garby's death, a circular was sent out by the white Director General of the CIO instructing senior staff to turn the screws on white ex-Rhodesians who were said to be living in South Africa and working for the SADF. The circular noted that Munangagwa had, quote, voiced his particular displeasure over former members of the Rhodesian security forces using Zimbabwe passports in their current professional endeavours on behalf of the South African government, endeavours which are clearly directed against the interests of this country, unquote. CIO officers were ordered to arrest anyone on the list who was entering Zimbabwe on a Zimbabwean passport and to interrogate and report on any of those individuals who entered on a foreign passport. The list contained the names of a number of people who were working for Project Barnacle, including Gray Branfield, Neil Creel and Peter Stanton. Similar instructions appear to have been issued to turn up the temperature on former members of the Rhodesian security forces living in Zimbabwe. And it wasn't long before some of those on the South African payroll began to feel the heat. The experience of John Gartner, a former Salu scout, is a case in point. Gartner had been recruited by Creel in 1980 and by 1981 was living in Bulawayo and conducting reconnaissance for Project Barnacle, using a job at a private security company, Fawcett Security, as a cover. Gartner was not at first aware that his boss at Fawcett's, Alan Trosdale, a former member of Special Branch, was also a South African agent. Gartner had had his first brush with CIO after CSI agents had tried unsuccessfully to kill Garby with a car bomb in February 1981. 
Gartner was warned that the CIO was looking to arrest him because he had come across the border from South Africa shortly before the attempt on Garby and had been in Salisbury when the bomb was found. Being uninvolved in that particular operation, he took a gamble and handed himself in, after which he was questioned by CIO and managed to convince his interrogator that he was not mixed up with the South Africans. He was less lucky later in the year, after Garby had been killed. Tipped off by an informant in CIO that Munangagwa had issued orders for his arrest, Gartner fled to a safe house at a farm in the Fort Rickson area north of Bluwayo. After a nervous couple of days, he was transported by Branfield and the farmer to an airstrip near Gwanda, where he and his family were picked up in a light plane by Creel and flown below the radar to Messina on the South African border. The culprit in the sabotage of the Incormore Ammunition Depot, or at least one of those responsible, was snagged at around the same time. Patrick Gerica, a member of the Zimbabwe Army's Engineering Corps, was arrested after making what was an astonishingly sloppy and amateurish mistake. He had left a document in the drawer of his desk that clearly linked him with SADF Special Forces, and it was discovered by military police when they conducted a search of his quarters. A top-secret telex to Pretoria from the South African Trade Mission noted that Gerica's arrest was to be kept quiet until his interrogation was complete, but that afterwards the Zimbabwean government intended to hold a public trial at which they were, quote, planning to give maximum publicity to the case, unquote. Both Mugabe and Munangagwa hinted to the press that headway had been made on the Nkormo sabotage, with the latter saying that the, quote, South African military and underworld individuals, unquote, were implicated. He remarked, quote, that an internal agent acting for an external enemy, unquote, had planted explosive devices at the depot and added that arrests would be announced soon. To the fury of the Zimbabweans, neither an announcement nor trial took place. Gerica was released from his cell by the investigating officer, Fred Varkavisa, and delivered into the hands of a South African rescue team led by Branfield, after which, like Gartner, he was flown across the border in a light aircraft. Varkavisa a white former Rhodesian police officer, took the gap to South Africa at the same time, earning notoriety among other whites in the Zimbabwean security services as a traitor and a deserter who had further increased the government's suspicion of white officers. A later account of the incident, based on interviews with Branfield, claimed that Varkavisa was left with no choice because Branfield and his team had captured him, placed an explosive belt around his waist and forced him to release Gerica. But another former Rhodesian who worked for the South Africans has since refuted that version of events, saying that Varkavisa was simply offered a lucrative deal by the South Africans and took it. Gerica's escape may have saved the South Africans the embarrassment of a trial, but it definitively blew the lid on Pretoria's involvement in subversive operations and further increased the intensity of Zimbabwe's counterintelligence efforts. 
South African sources noted that Munangagwa was, quote, extremely upset by Gerica's escape and appeared to have said that whites in the Zimbabwe security services may not conduct investigations of this kind on their own, unquote. Rubbing salt into the wound, it emerged publicly that Gerica had been one of the police officers assigned to investigate Garby's murder, with the press suggesting that other South African agents in the system may have engineered that situation. Munangagwa met with his humiliated Home Affairs counterpart, Richard Horve, who was responsible for the police, and there were soon indications that the screws would be further ratcheted up on white members of the security forces, both current and former. Speaking in early December, Mugabe said that, quote, We are all Zimbabweans, but some don't share the common sense of belonging. They have one foot in Zimbabwe and another in South Africa. We ask these people to have their feet in one place. We will facilitate where they want their two feet to be, unquote. The decision makers in Pretoria, never renowned for their political imagination at the best of times, failed to recognise that yet more skullduggery and pressure on the Zimbabweans would not yield the results they wanted and would, in fact, be counterproductive in terms of South African interests as they defined them. In October, the SSC, the State Security Council, reviewed its Zimbabwe policy and doubled down on the decision it had made in 1980 to squeeze the Mugabe regime. The SSC assessed that Zimbabwe was, quote, under pressure from other African countries to support a black revolution in South Africa, unquote, and remarked that the aim must be to, quote, prevent the Zimbabwe government from prejudicing South Africa's interests, unquote, in that and other respects. Such an objective was, in the main, already being achieved, but the government of P.W. Borta was naive enough to believe that it could go beyond that and push the Zimbabweans into a closer relationship with the apartheid regime. The SSC asserted that, quote, the disposition of the Zimbabwe government must be changed to a sympathetic and non-hostile attitude and the government must be moved to promote common interests with South Africa to establish, eventually, a Southern African constellation of states, unquote. The so-called constellation of states was a South African pipe dream that envisaged a friendly and economically dependent group of black neighbours who would be content to see South Africa evolve domestically without external interference. The SSC's action plan therefore denoted the continuation of activities aimed at enhancing Zimbabwe's economic dependence on South Africa. Such actions included, quote, coercive measures when absolutely essential, unquote, and had already involved the sabotage of alternative trade routes, such as the ones that Zimbabwe was trying to open through Mozambique, and interference with the flow of goods through South Africa. On the security side, the SSC reiterated that the SADF must, quote, combat any possible terrorist action from Zimbabwe territory 
and if necessary, retaliate with SSC authorised action. Unquote. Security agencies were also instructed to, quote, prepare contingency plans for neutralising identified targets, unquote, and were given a final and conspicuously broad mandate to, quote, take security action in the interests of South Africa, taking into consideration the normal approval procedures, unquote. Pretoria's unrealistic reading of Mugabe's pliability and its reflexive recourse to military options perhaps explains why, at a moment when the Zimbabweans were more aggravated than they had ever been about South African subversion, the SSC gave the green light to the boldest and most personal attack on the ZANU-PF government since independence. You are listening to a podcast from the Institute for Continuing History, written and presented by Dr. Stuart Doran. If you'd like to learn more about the Institute's work and explore some of our other projects, please visit continuinghistory.org. On the 18th of December, a massive blast rocked central Salisbury during a Friday lunch hour. A 20-kilogram bomb had been detonated at the heart of ZANU-PF headquarters, by some accounts in the conference room where the party's central committee was due to meet. Seven were killed and 124 injured, most of whom were passing by on the street or queuing in an adjacent bakery. There were suggestions at the time, from different sources, that the explosion might have been an accident, or, as the South African Trade Mission speculated, the work of a black Zimbabwean opposition group. But this was a case of the left hand not knowing what the right hand was doing. The Trade Mission was only 500 metres from the site of the blast, but a long way from the most recent machinations of the SSC, and was left in the dark. The SADF's Deputy Chief of Staff Intelligence, General Chris Tyrion, has since acknowledged that the attack was a CSI job, intended, quote, to cause as much damage as possible, unquote, though perhaps not to kill senior members of the government, given that the building had emptied out during lunch hour. The precise intention remains a moot point. Mugabe reacted angrily to this latest outrage, not doubting its South African origins, given its proximity to the Garbi and Gerica incidents. Directing his invective at agents of the South Africans in Zimbabwe, he said that, quote, We don't have to do any witch hunting because the witch in our region is known. South Africa recruits mercenaries for all kinds of stupid acts. The very people we gave after the war are the ones who take advantage by trying to destabilise our situation and even overthrow the government. We would rather that they were not facilitated any more by our own forgiveness. We will be telling you soon what actions we have in mind. We're catching up with the criminal elements. There will be regrets sooner or later. Unquote. He wished his criminal fellow Zimbabweans a happy Christmas and New Year, 
and soon had the satisfaction of seeing that early 1982 was as miserable as he hoped it would be for some of South Africa's moles. On the 31st of December, all white members of the CIO at the organisation's headquarters were ordered to leave their desks while a search took place. Three were arrested when illegal weapons and other incriminating evidence was found. Two of them, Philip Hartlebury and Colin Evans, admitted to involvement in the Garby operation and said that they had been recruited by another member of the CIO, Geoffrey Price, who was the head of Mugabe's close protection unit. Price subsequently managed to flee to South Africa before he was arrested. Evans was also alleged to have supplied the explosives used to bomb ZANU-PF headquarters, a charge he denied. The South African Trade Mission reported to Pretoria that 13 white members of CIO resigned in the wake of the raid on the headquarters, quote, because of their perception that the black members have started a witch hunt, unquote. A clean-out was also taking place within the police as a consequence of the Varkavisa affair. Home Affairs Minister Horve, doubtless on Mugabe's orders, issued an internal edict that froze promotions for white members of the force until their loyalty to the government had been re-examined, a decision that prompted a large number of whites to resign from the service. In terms of the clandestine arm wrestle between the two countries, these events cost the South Africans more than they did the Zimbabweans. Mugabe and Munangagwa did not force through a thoroughgoing purge of the CIO. They retained a significant number of older white CIO officers with whom they had worked closely since independence, some of whom were strongly anti-South African and who played a crucial role in the struggle with Pretoria. For the South Africans, however, the decision to keep pushing the envelope had exposed some of the contradictions in their Zimbabwe policy and was eliciting counterproductive effects. Mugabe was not becoming more malleable, but more rigid and combative in the face of pressure and the Zimbabwean crackdown was beginning to produce a variety of practical problems. Aside from disruption to their espionage networks, the South Africans found that routine dialogue with Zimbabwean counterparts at a bureaucratic level, a process that had been going on behind the scenes since independence, was now under threat. Ironically, the SSC had explicitly identified such cooperation as an ongoing objective, instructing officials, quote, to exploit fully the existing channels of communication in order to expand good relations with Zimbabwe's authorities, unquote. Intelligence liaison with the Zimbabweans was particularly valuable in view of the absence of formal diplomatic ties, enabling direct discussion not only on regular matters such as border control, but also on more sensitive issues such as the activities of ANC guerrillas. The South Africans were slow to point their ship in a different direction as a result of these setbacks. And when they did so in the second half of 1982, the change was more a matter of style than of substance. Many of the fundamental contradictions remained. 
On ZANU-PF's side, the cruder elements of the counterintelligence strategy were soon to impose their own costs. The successes of 1981 were to be overshadowed by a series of blunders caused by overconfidence, excess aggression and paranoia to the detriment of various Zimbabwean interests. In one sense, ZANU's leadership was not dissimilar to that of the apartheid regime, notwithstanding the vast ideological differences between the two. Both instinctively reached for boots and all solutions, frequently implementing them in a ham-fisted manner, and they were slow to discern the price tags or the alternatives. You have been listening to a podcast from the Institute for Continuing History, written and presented by Dr. Stuart Doran. The next episode in this series on South African black ops deals with the sabotage of Zimbabwe's Air Force and Pretoria's attempts to develop a rebel movement in Matabeleland, among other events.